welcome to Rebalancing Act. We are Karen and Leslie Ann, two lawyers and friends. We know that climate change is here and that we have to solve it. So every second Friday, we come together and talk about how we're gonna get there. I recently had the pleasure of interviewing Scott A. Bonar, currently a professor at the University of Arizona who researches fishery conservation and formerly also the president of the American Fisheries Society. Scott and I talked about what we can do to help preserve fisheries. What it means as a scientist to advocate for climate solutions and perhaps most importantly, how to engage in the positive and constructive conversations that we need to mitigate emissions. I hope that you enjoy it. All right, Scott, thank you so much for uh, being interviewed by Rebalancing Act. How are you doing today? I'm doing uh, really well, thank you. It's nice to be here, I appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing greater than talking about your life's passion. And I feel like that's what we'll be doing today for you. So oh, yeah. I'm excited. Why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction about yourself? I know you mentioned that you yourself are a big freshwater person. So how did that lead into your interest in studying fisheries? Well, uh, I grew up in southern Indiana on a lake, and uh, I loved going into that lake. I liked fishing, of course, but I liked uh, snorkeling and diving in there and watching what all the fish were doing. And uh, that lake and where I grew up was also happened to be at the confluence of two major rivers uh, in the states, and that's, uh, you know, the Ohio and the Wabash. And uh, so they were big brown rivers and uh, we'd go down to them and we'd canoe on them and check things out and fish in them. And I always wondered what was in those things, you know, what, what fish were doing and what, what were they doing every day? So I got interested in that. And then uh, I went on, got a degree in education uh, at the University of Evansville. And then I went out for fishery school at the University of Washington and uh, out in Seattle. And there I just fell in love with the place, you know, with the, uh, the diving in Puget Sound, seeing all the marine critters, the, uh, uh, all the wonderful rivers and lakes up there and everything. And so I got into that. I worked uh, for about 10 years with the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, helping to manage some of Washington's fisheries. And uh, then I got a call from, uh, to come down and interview at uh, the University of Arizona for a professor's job. And I was thinking, why in the heck would a fisheries biologist want to go down there in the desert? <laughs> uh, but uh, I came down here and uh, just absolutely fell in love with this place too, because uh, down in the desert, the water is so special. And it's, uh, you'll have small pools that were separated by miles and miles of desert. And in those pools, uh, life evolves and uh, they're like their own little universe. And so um, uh, it's kind of like studying terrestrial animals on South Pacific islands. So it's kind of like studying little islands of, of fresh water and these animals in them. And so um, there is everything from some of the most Southern trouts in the world up in the high country to, um, some of the uh, one of some of these little springs that have pup fishes in it. They're separated by dozens of miles from the nearest water. So we're six hours from San Diego in the Pacific, and the, and three hours from the Sea of Cortez. So you gotta love it as a fisheries biologist down here too. That's great. I didn't make that connection between the desert and your interest in fisheries, mm -hmm. but yeah. it's great to hear that it's still you know. I think people sometimes think of deserts as a lack of life, but obviously they have their very own complex ecosystems and that's not true at all. It's just a different habitat than mm -hmm. I guess being in a lush forest or something like that. You're absolutely right. So, I mean, of course we know, and Canada, it's very much a part of Canadian identity, but of course it, I think is true of the US as well, that there's a lot of fresh water, there's a lot of lakes, there's a lot of fishing industry and it's funny because as a consumer of fish products, someone that it doesn't necessarily interact with those ecosystems, you sometimes forget about the importance of keeping them healthy. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you see maybe a way for us as consumers of fish products and you know, people that we, we want to be stewarding these places but aren't always directly connected to them? Do you think that there's a way to sort of generate greater awareness between those two disconnects? Yes, um, uh, I think you put it really nicely that, um, uh, uh, that uh, if you're a consumer of seafood, if you enjoy going out and fishing, if you like to recreate on water, if you like to fly to coral reefs and go diving, 
all that is so important to have that connection and have healthy ecosystems. So we are not separated at all from these aquatic ecosystems. We depend on them, each and every one of us. And so um, uh, one of the, uh, there's many things that affect our aquatic ecosystems, things like, uh, uh, you know, pollution and uh, overfishing and invasive species. Uh, but one of the overall uh, important things is climate change. That's it's it's just a huge issue, and it's getting bigger and bigger. And so um, your question was, what can the average consumer do on, uh, about this kind of thing? Well, um, one of the um, um, uh, uh, one of the things that uh, in everyday people, um, I don't think that they realize how much they can do, and uh, they can really have an impact. And uh, the impact uh, uh, is something where um, um, if you listen to the news and uh, if you talk to people, uh, some of the experts in climate communication say the topic doesn't come up as much as it should. You know, people just aren't talking about it as much as they should, given the gravity of the issue. The gravity of the issue is huge. So um, uh, one of the best things that people can do, Catherine Hayhoe, who is a climate communicator says, talk about it. Talk about it with your friends, your families, write letters to your uh, elected officials, contact your elected officials. Um, we talk about how we as an individual can do certain things. And that's true. I mean, I've got a electric car, I have solar all over the house and, uh, I think it's crazy that this stuff has not been uh, more, more widely spread adopted. I don't pay anything for gas and just drive in, come back home and stuff like that. And things, we have a $15 a month uh, bill for both the car operation and the house. That's so great. people can do things like that. <laughs> yeah, people can do things like that. But I would say, talk about it and write officials, talk to your uh, elected officials and remember it at voting time. Who are the people who can who prioritize climate change? Because this is something we really increasingly are going to have to prioritize and address. And so um, uh, those are some of the things that I, you know, right off what I would recommend. Absolutely. I think, you know, one of the reasons why me and Leslie and my co-host started the podcast is because we felt like people were afraid of having conversations about climate change because almost acknowledging the issue without talking about it in the context of solutions just felt too scary. Yeah. I think, mm -hmm. you know, so frequently you mentioned you don't know why there's more uptake on solar and on electric vehicles. And it's because sometimes we don't talk about the issue in the context of those solutions. I mean, politicization aside, that's it's just such a huge global issue. It is a truly global issue, and it's hard as one person to grapple with it. So I really do believe in talking to each other about it and talking about, the, like you mentioned, the both kind of individual and collective actions that can be done. Because I think in the context of fisheries, they're so special. Being by the water is so special and not just the water, but the whole ecosystem inside of it. The difference between, you know, sitting above the water and it just looking like water and you put your head in and you see everything that's going on underneath and how much life is there. Um, it, is, it is really special and giving people that connection and helping people steward it, uh, steward those places is so important. I think you're absolutely right. And you know what, uh, what really strikes me is a couple of things. Um, first, to enjoy the aquatic world, you can certainly fish, you can go out in your boats and things like that, but uh, there's a whole world out there just in the little freshwater lake that people want to go buy a cheap mask and snorkel, dive in there, and you have opened up a whole new world to yourself. And so it's so exciting uh, seeing that out there. And so uh, uh, I think you're absolutely right uh, that, 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 is a, that is a big thing. Um, what you were saying about climate change, uh, I think too, is uh, resonates a lot. Um, one of the things which uh, is so uh, encouraging to me on climate change is that we can do something. I mean, this is what is, is so amazing to me that uh, uh, people think it's like curing cancer. 
You know, there's no, yeah. <laughs> there is sort of solutions for that. We're getting closer, but we know exactly what we need to do here. And uh, we have exciting technologies, like I was talking about the solar, the electric car, things like that that are coming along that uh, are not only uh, uh, really good for the environment, but are fun to adopt. And they give lots of jobs and things like that. And so um, uh, there's all these possibilities that if people would embrace them and talk about it. To your, to your neighbors. And um, um, one final thought on that, it, it is scary talking about uh, climate change and, uh, sometimes. Uh, uh, and uh, it's uh, what you'll find out is, and I've talked to the hardest core climate deniers as you would ever imagine. And I try to put myself in that position, see what works and you know what doesn't. And I found out that once you take that dive, it's like jumping off the diving board. Um, it's really not that bad. Um, it, it works out uh, pretty well. Um, uh, you uh, can approach them on a mutual interest, like how their kids you know, are going to fare later or how they're fishing. Is going to do given this advice you know we both like fishing you know this is this is some of the stuff we scientists are seeing or we both want our kids to have the opportunity to dive a healthy coral reef and um, here's what we need to do to do this kind of thing and i found that i've had uh, you know uh, coming from you probably tell from my accent i come from a part of the country where uh, uh climate change denial let's just say there's more than a few uh, folks that are involved in that. And uh, I talk to them and after a while, um, uh, we come to a common ground. It doesn't happen overnight, you know, but you come to a common ground if you just persist and keep up with them and be very respectful and uh, talk about it a lot. And I think, I think there's a lot of hope there if people would take, uh, you know, take the initiative and do that. That's great to hear. Something that I thought was so interesting was reading about how different types, like, you know, as we've mentioned, some of these technologies and techniques are so cool that different appeals work for different people. So I know mm -hmm. for some people, the moral appeal is really compelling, you know, the stewardship mm -hmm. of the earth. For other people, the health benefits of renewables and clean air is more compelling mm -hmm. to them personally, for example. Right. And I think yeah. knowing your audience and using those different tools in your toolbox and like knowing, you know, necessarily because they're because there are lots of impacts of climate change and because there are lots of cool technologies, knowing what might interest a person and, you know, they might just find that those technologies are cool on their own merit as well. So I think mm. oh, yeah. a little creativity yeah. and flexibility and thinking goes a long way as well. I couldn't agree more. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I have one of my best friends. Uh, uh, I, I respect the heck out of him, but he's a hardcore climate denier. It's kind of like having a friend who's a hardcore smoker. You know, uh, uh, you like all these other parts about them, but this part is uh, uh, you think, well, uh, you can make a few little shifts here and uh, uh, you'd, you'd come out ahead for your family and everything else. And one of the uh, what you're saying there is looking for those areas of commonality, like uh, this uh, guy is a, a very good engineer. And so uh, we can talk to him about, okay, look at this new uh, renewable technology. And he said, he sent me a, a video uh, the other day about some of the early electric cars from back in uh, the turn of the century. He goes, look at these exciting sorts of things that they had way back then. And I thought, wow, that's wonderful. You know, if we can certainly agree on some of the solutions where we still have differences on um, the underlying cause of things like that. Absolutely. I, I it would be great to hear about your specific time working as the president of the American Fisheries Society. So I know you mentioned that there was uh, an open letter that was released. And I'm just curious to hear about both what the letter was about, and I'll share it when we release the podcast, but also what the process of sort of drafting that amongst many, many stakeholders was like. You bet. Um, well, um, the American Fishery Society, uh, I don't know if you know, uh, is the oldest and largest uh, scientific fishery society in the world. And so uh, when you get elected as president of this, uh, it's like, wow, this is a big deal. And uh, I want to really make, make it count. I want to do something that uh, pays back the honor of being elected as the president. And so um, for years, um, uh, I've seen uh, the climate effects to our fisheries, uh, uh, you know, just 
one after the other. And so, you know, I'm living in Arizona and you uh, uh, probably heard about out West. Uh, we have had just uh, several years of intensifying drought of fires. And so um, uh, we've had to pull students out of areas where the fires are roaring in. I've had to evacuate my family. We've had to save fish populations, work with the management agencies to save fish populations that are in the path of these wildfires rolling over the hill. And these are scary, intense, big fires. These are not the small ones that are helpful for the ecosystem. And so we've got all this. And then um, when I started traveling around, uh, with the American Fishery Society, I found out this was not just something that was happening to the people here in the West. When I went to the Midwest, I would listen to their talks out there and they said of the massive flooding they were getting in some areas. We're getting rainfall, more rainfall, more rainfall. We're having uh, fish populations like walleye on the southern end of their ranges being stressed by some of the increases in heat. Um, when uh, I go to uh, Nova Scotia, up in Canada, go up to the maritime provinces up there, I'd hear their biologists talking about uh, uh, fish that were moving north 20 some odd uh, miles a year, I think the, the, uh, uh, some of the statistics are. Um, uh, and they were actually catching in some of the places up there in uh, uh, off the northeast coast, they're catching tropical fish in some of their nets. Uh, because these animals are moving so far north. Um, and then um, we went to the, uh, uh, I had a chance to go over to Australia and I talked to some of the biologists over there and same sort of thing. They were talking about the coral reefs and I said, hey, I, you know, I read that they had lost 50% of their shallow water corals due to bleaching and things like that. And they said, why don't you try more like 90% in some areas? And so uh, the Great Barrier Reef is getting hit um, the Southern Ocean, uh, they're finding these fish are moving into deeper waters and moving poleward. So it's happening all over the world. And uh, the reason it is for fish, um, uh, many people know this, some don't. Uh, fish are, uh, uh, they have an optimum temperature at which they can live. They're called ectotherms, which means we used to call it cold-blooded when I was growing up, okay? And so these fish have an optimum temperature that they can live in. And some fish, their optimum temperature is very cold waters. Some fish, it's warmer waters. But as the globe heats and these waters change, these fish either move out of the way or their population perishes. So um, they have a narrow window that they can live at. And so we're seeing that all over the world. And uh, that's not only fish, it's corals. It's, um, uh, you know, a, a shellfish, what have you. And so you have this, this heating going on, but at the same time with these animals, you have uh, the carbon goes into the water. It creates more acidic conditions. And so uh, you have a lot of animals that have trouble uh, making shells. We're seeing this with shellfish growers and things. They're finding that some of their shellfish, you talked about what uh, some of the issues might be for uh, people who ate seafood. Well, shellfish, it's affected by acidic waters. Uh, animals can't make shells if the water is too acid. And that's what climate change and the carbon dioxide does when it gets into the water. And so, uh, so we were, I was hearing this stuff all over the place. And um, Anyway, um, what was going on was um, um, uh, I talked to uh, uh, the Australians and I said, you know what, There's, there seems like there would be something we can do uh, on this. And uh, the Australians, uh, they said, yeah, you know, uh, uh, what were you thinking about? And I approached them with an idea about maybe we could have a statement from aquatic societies all around the world. And this statement would say, here's what we are seeing, not what we project to see, but what we are seeing right now in our aquatic environments um, with uh, the, the changes in climate. And then uh, uh, maybe have some suggestions with what the science says right now. So it's educating people to say, here's what the science says we should do about this because we can do something about it. And so the Australians said, yeah, that's, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I approached the leadership um, uh, and this is a particular society of the Australian Society for Fish Biologists and they all voted on it. And they said, we do not typically um, uh, advocate for things but this is such a big deal that people wanted to go for it. And so anyway, they all voted and they said, yes, we wanna do it. So I had to go back to the American Fishery Society 
and talk to folks back there and say, yeah, we better get on board because <laughs> we got the we got the folks over there. Well, um, this thing snowballed and uh, we went through several votes, the American Fishery Society. Everybody was very supportive. I mean, there were a couple of holdouts, but uh, uh, most people were very supportive of getting this uh, uh, letter done. It went through like three or three votes, I think separate votes. People could input on things that they were seeing in their areas. And we contacted societies all over the world. We had a, uh, a wonderful climate change communication committee and uh, they got the names of these societies all around the world and uh, contact information. And so we would contact them and ask them, would you like to be part of this? Would you like to give us some information that you are seeing in your areas and uh, uh, sign on to this? And uh, the overwhelming uh, uh, majority of them said, uh, yes, you know, that we heard back from. They, they said, uh, yeah, we, we're seeing this thing. Uh, we're seeing these changes going on. And so they wrote in, we would uh, uh, do a draft of the letter or a draft of the statement. We'd send it all out to them for tweaking and what they thought, hey, we saw this, but we didn't see that, you know, that kind of thing uh, for edits and everything. The thing came back, went through several revisions. And then at the end, um, uh, we had 111 different societies that signed on to this. And they are from all seven continents, even Antarctica is represented. And uh, uh, so uh, all these societies, uh, we counted it up and it represents over 80,000 scientists, marine wow. and freshwater scientists. And we have uh, in the letter, um, we have the names of all the societies that signed on, again, 111 all around the world, okay? And uh, they talk about here are the effects some of the major effects we're seeing in freshwaters. Here are some of the major effects we're seeing in, in marine systems. Here are some of the effects we're seeing to people who depend on these systems. And then finally, here are some of the needed responses. And uh, one of the, the top needed response was, we have to get a handle on emissions. Absolutely. Uh, that is key. And uh, that means, again, talking to people, talking to our governments, writing to our governments, just not letting this become a lower priority issue. And then after that, of course, there's adaptation uh, to changes that we can't um, uh, stop, uh, you know, or to have to live with. And uh, the other thing is um, um, uh, developing or protecting these carbon sequestering environments, things like peatlands, wetlands, these sorts of things. There are allies in our uh, ability to tackle these emissions. Absolutely. So I'm curious what, you know, many of the changes that you've described really sound like a matter of, I think the amount, you know, the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, but beyond that, what, if anything is possible at um, in terms of adaptation. And I guess like, I wonder if that would be more at a sort of regulatory or government level, I'd imagine sort of policies and procedures for fisheries. I'm curious, is, does the issue of overfishing factor into this at all? Or is that a separate issue from the ecosystem degradation? You, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, uh, uh, what, um, uh, what factors affect um, um, uh, the impact to the fishes is you've got, got this, you've got climate change, it's always going on in the background, right? And it's getting worse and worse and worse. So we can do some, um, uh, we can work with uh, 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 making some things a little bit better by controlling those other stressors, things like overfishing, Things like, um, you know, uh, too many fertilizers, too many nutrients in some areas, say around the coral reefs, uh, things like protecting the peatlands and the wetlands. Uh, so uh, 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 all those go hand in hand um, with being able to protect our natural eco aquatic ecosystem. So yes, it's, it's very important, but we need to think all the time, climate change is going on. It's always in the background. It's always going to get worse unless we deal with the emissions. And uh, the more we deal with the emissions, the less we have to adapt. Absolutely. And I think there is something so key in there just in terms of, you know, like we discussed with 
with curing cancer, with adapting, and even with natural sinks, all of those things are so crucial, but just in terms, and like they're important and we need to work on them, but just in terms of scale, it's so much easier to deal with emissions. Like it's much more straightforward in many cases, not in all cases, but it, it truly is the lowest hanging fruit in many ways. Uh, so I yeah, think yeah. it is important, you know, when we're talking about all of the fisheries specifically, and, you know, I'm sure listeners to the podcast want to know how they can help. And it's good. It's good to remember that um, protecting ecosystems is important and also not to sort of get your eye away from the ball of also reducing emissions is important. And, you know, as we say on the podcast all the time, also is a win-win because it makes your life better in other ways as well. Yeah, and I, I really liked your point there. You don't want to take your eye away from the ball. I think a lot of times uh, people may not prioritize or maybe get tired of talking about emissions. Try to resist that. Try to talk about them all, uh, all the time because that is the key. That's the linchpin. Um, uh, right now, we're getting into the point where we're going to have to have some sequestration from what I'm hearing from the different scientists, you know, who work on forests and things like that. We're going to, we're going to need some of that, definitely, to help us out of this. Uh, but don't take your eye off on the ball. We've got to get the emissions controlled. And uh, prior, prioritize that. And talking about it, writing letters, getting the majority of the populace to think, yeah, we need to do this. Let's band together and do it. It's something we have the technology to take care of. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Have you noticed, I'm curious, have you noticed a change in the way that, you know, it's, I haven't been a part of the climate movement, I suppose, for probably as long as you have, but I'm curious if you've noticed a change in the way that people talk about it in the last few years because there is just generally in my life more discourse about climate change and also about climate solutions, sort of filtering into more areas. At one point, I think it felt, it was very much the realm of activism, which is important, and also almost a nonprofit lens, sort of this like charitable thing that people are doing outside of the realm of business and government and life. And I think the idea that these things all are interconnected, you need government, you need business to all be on board, just on some level because of the forces of like the capital involved so that's necessary mm -hmm. and i'm curious if you've noticed a shift in that in your own life and discourse as well oh yes yes um the last thing anybody would describe me as is an activist uh you know in the past i'm i'm a fish biologist i like local local stuff and i would not describe myself as an activist but i love my fish so much and i want my kids to have that opportunity and my friends and frankly i want the opportunity to enjoy these as long as possible so uh, i i have shifted over over the years uh to really trying to emphasize this but in the in the overall picture of things um what uh, what i have seen is um people recognize, increasingly recognize it's a problem. Uh, they increasingly see that it's something we have to do something. And that's not just um, uh, quote unquote tree hugger types. That's uh, 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 folks like the Pentagon, insurance agencies, things like that. Uh, they're finding we've got to deal with this. You know, the, uh, these are hard you know, hardcore as stoic, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, pillars of our society as you would get to say, we've got to do something about this. And, you know, it's interesting. Um, uh, what I have seen over my life is uh, how denial has changed. So for him, at the beginning, people would say, well, uh, deniers would say, oh, the temperature's not going up. Right? Well, you can't really argue with the thermometer. Yeah. And so after a while, they say, OK, the temperature's going up, uh, but uh, the climate's, you know, it's, it's due to something else, you know, sunspots or volcanic activity. Mm -hmm. Well, um, dozens and dozens of scientists can look at that and go, uh, here's a study that shows we can figure that out through satellites, through study of the earth, all this kind of thing that they can figure out. No, that's not it. There's this one thing that continually comes up and it's greenhouse gas emissions that's related to our changes in climate. And it's something we as physicists, as climatologists, they can prove. And uh, so, they, so next it was, well, uh, let's concentrate on if we do something, then other countries in the world won't. And so what influence will that be? And then 
I, you know, just personally look at it and I say, well, think about it. When we develop things like the airplane or personal computers or um, uh, indoor plumbing, uh, you know, whatever country that developed it, didn't other countries adopt that because it would increase their quality of life? So it's not like these other countries will still keep polluting at that level if there's all these other neat solutions over here that in increase their quality of life. That's just not borne by historical fact. And uh, finally, what we're seeing, what I'm seeing personally, my observation now is, so the people who are denying are saying, well, you know, um, uh, we don't have to decrease our emissions. We can focus on things like tree planting and things like that, or just sequestering, just protecting the wetlands and adapting to things. And um, the science shows um, uh, uh, that, uh, well, let me back up that we've had uh, uh, people who work at the University of Arizona where I'm at and they're climatologists. They say, we just can't tackle this with natural solutions alone. No, you kind of need, you need all of that and zero emissions, yeah. Absolutely right. Absolutely. So emissions, you got to tackle it. You can't throw it out. So the emissions is, is the big one. So I guess to answer your question, we're seeing these changes over time. They're gradual. And I hope we can do as much as we can. In fact, I think we can, if people get the word, that they need to influence other folks so we can get those majorities that say, hey, let's let's band together and do something. You know, it's not a, a Democrat issue. It's not a Republican issue. It's just an issue that we need to take care of for the health of ourselves and our families. Absolutely. It is so interesting, even in your own explanation of um, how you've seen things change that really makes sense to me in the context of you and the 111 other societies all wanting to write an open letter. And I think that, you know, there's really been discourse within the scientific community. I'm not a scientist, but my parents are, and I, you know, understand the nature of the scientific method and how, when you are talking about hypotheses in a scientific context, sometimes you have to change the way that you explain those things to people in order to make it seem more affirmative and more action inducing. And it sounds really like the scientific community that you're a part of has realized that, you know, it's okay if we are more emphatic about these things. It's okay to really, uh, you know, rest on these conclusions that climate change is affecting fishing, like fishery societies and that, you know, we should be saying that we should be pointing it out to people in an active way. Yes, and uh, I agree with you. Um, uh, you know, people will describe this as maybe advocacy, and I would describe it as education. Where, uh, you know, this is this is what's happened, and I try to be emphatic because this is how serious it is. Just like uh, if you go into the doctor uh, and uh, your lungs are uh, bothering you, and you're a five pack a day smoker, and the doctor's going to sit you down and say to you, "You got to stop smoking." They'll be, be pretty empathetic, right? And they'll be pretty uh, they'll be pretty vocal about it. Well, I think the same way with climate change. Environmental biologists; these are uh, uh, you know scientists in all kinds of disciplines need to speak out uh, and say empathetically, "This is what's happening. It's education. It's telling you what's going on. And if you want to make a change for a, um, a more healthy ecosystem." These are the steps you have to do. That's education, as opposed to saying you have to do these. Well, you have to do them if you want a better ecosystem, if you want a better uh, 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 quality of life, depending on these ecosystems, here's what you have to do. It's up to you to make the decision to do it or not. Absolutely. It's so easy. You know, I grew up in the city of Toronto, fairly large. I am a city girl. I love nature, but haven't really spent that much time outside of the city. Uh, and it's, it is easy to forget sometimes that you are still a part of this ecosystem in so many ways, both physically, even if you're in a city, it's in, it's still in the real world, it's mm -hmm. in the physical oh, yeah. world. And then beyond that, even the products that you're consuming, you know, you get produce, you get fish, you get meat. Mm -hmm. um, it's all, it's all coming from these ecosystems. And even though it appears on the grocery shelf, we're still relying on them uh, all the time. And, yeah. you know, that's that's for me coming from my position of being able to go into a grocery store and buy these things. I know there are so many communities, not necessarily North American ones as much, but in other places that like all of their diet relies on seafood. 
Yeah, it's uh, it affects us all a little bit differently. And you, uh, I find it interesting you're mentioning uh, the, the connection uh, a person in the city would have. I look at it as, as um, I've been in rural areas for a lot of my life. And what it makes me, and uh, you know, I've been alive for a fair number of years. So what it makes me, uh, what makes me so sad is seeing places change over the decades that I saw when I might've been a little kid or uh, you know, a teenager and see how things have shifted because you can see it with your own eyes. And uh, that's a perspective that really strikes me as a older, more rural-centered guy. And uh, so uh, we all have different ways we approach it. And uh, uh, I think the, the take home is we all need to speak up. And so we can keep approaching it you know, in that same way where we have uh, these ecosystems we can enjoy and use and live with. Absolutely. Uh, Leslie Ann interviewed uh, a lawyer actually who is a waterkeeper in Ontario and he said the fish can't speak for themselves so we need to do it for them and I think that um, you know that's that's true and you mentioned so many ways that we can do that so I, I really appreciate that. You bet. It's both speaking for the fish, the coral, uh, the marine mammals, all the sea life, but mainly it's speaking for us. If we want to have a good quality of life, uh, we can't do it without, like you said, without these uh, different ecosystems we live with. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Scott. This was a really great interview and it was very inspiring and action inducing. Okay. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity and best wishes to you. All righty. Nice to talk to you, Leslie, and how are you doing? It's so nice to talk to you, Kieran. I'm doing all right. I've got my my cat who is no longer sitting here licking my knee, but is instead supervising me from the back of the chair. Sweet. Yeah. I how love that. Well, I'm glad that we have one listener already. Your interview, though. What did you think about um, Scott's interview? Also so nice. Scott just sounds like the nicest person. I want to be his friend. He was. I mean, aside from the long-distance nature of it, I think <laughs> you two see very eye-to-eye with your love of marine creatures. All sorts of I critters. I do love someone who just, you know, really loves their critters. And I thank you, Scott, for providing a great interview. And it was like, you know, an interview that evolved in a way that I hadn't fully expected to because... Uh, All of the stuff about fisheries conservation is extremely important and interesting, but I think above all else, what stood out to me was really Scott's own personal evolution of being, you know, a scientist in the sense of observing and creating hypotheses and measuring to a scientist and who organizes other scientists to really make, I think, claims and statements about what needs to happen in other areas of society in order to in order to enact conservation. It's such an interesting thing to talk about how we use science and this information, how we bring people together to do it. And it's something that I don't think we actually think about a lot. Because, I mean, in some ways it feels counterintuitive and this really does get into, I think, the science of behavioral change. What makes someone change their behavior isn't always what you... It, you know, once our impulses when we talk to someone and what maybe our most, like our ego wants us to say isn't necessarily actually going to be the thing that is most persuasive, even if we feel like it's most persuasive, persuasive. And it turns out that, I mean, for decades now, for longer than our lifetimes, scientists have been discussing the very real threats posed by climate change. And I think in, in fairly accurate and sufficient detail. And that in of itself hasn't been enough to create change. And there are lots of reasons for that. But I think that scientists now have come to recognize this and are changing their own behavior and the way that they really explain things and um, explain their own observations in order to account for this real oh, no. phenomenon. I think you're right. I think science communication, which is a phrase I had, I don't know that I ever truly thought about that phrase before starting this podcast. But hey, it turns out we do science communication. And 
I actually started thinking about it. We do. Uh, listening to a couple other podcasts, in particular Threshold, uh, which does kind of more long-form podcasting and journalism over their series, over their seasons, that focus a lot on climate change, actually, as well as the Ologies podcast, where they focus on a different type of science every episode. And I, I've, it's made me think a lot about how we communicate science and how the skill sets that make someone a good scientist aren't always the skill sets that make them a good communicator because, you know, we all have those different skill sets. And for so long, scientists have been able to just do their research, publish it in a scientific journal, or, you know, build their prototype, sell their prototype, whatever it may be for their kind of science, without having to worry about how the public digests it. But with climate change, and even you could say COVID and other big crises like that that society is facing, we're reaching a point where to be successful as democracies in addressing these crises, we need a public that can understand what's at risk and what the solutions are. And that requires science communication. And it's challenging, I think, the traditional skills of scientists. Absolutely, because I would go even further to say that I think good science depends, when you publish good science, it depends on not overstating the results and it depends on couching the results in the reality of no one can know everything. So if you prove or disprove your hypothesis, I think that is good science and that's rigorous. But then I think more and more the understanding that taking that phraseology and knowing that that's not how the rest of the world talks about things or thinks about things. And also that unfortunately people who aren't doing good science or even science at all will use different, more inflammatory, more emotional language that gets people more engaged. And that I think it's it's an extremely difficult task to really keep those rigors of science and the scientific method while communicating it in a way that feels equally urgent and that feels like it actually like contributes to like what can be a very intense discourse created by non-scientists. Yeah. Anyone can lie on the internet and people will believe it. And so what do scientists, you know, we're still figuring out like in this new format of the internet too, like how do you, how do you, um, how do you present the truth in relation to that without also becoming yourself someone that's overstating? This kind of led me to also think about, you know, my conversation with Scott. And so one of my friends who listens to the podcast, so I guess this is a listener question, asked me recently. Yes. I know. I love, I love it. They asked, I'm shouting you out, Larissa. So she asked me, really just about why there isn't more discussion of how theories of political change work. You know, when we call about the need for systemic change and we say it's not just individual change is needed, it's more broad societal change. um, And we have to get to that change somehow. And that clearly involves institutions and political processes. How do we do it? And how do we know that the way that we're trying to do it is the best way out there? And, you know, that we're not doing it in the worst possible way. And I, I think that that's a good question and I feel like we should answer it. I agree that we should definitely answer it. I think there's a lot of different things to that question. For me, one of the big ones that hadn't actually popped in my mind when we kind of talked a little bit about this before, Kieran, but the idea of how do we know we're doing it in the best way and not the worst way is, you know, we can look at the world stage for a little bit of that because at a very basic level in Canada, we're addressing these issues through a democracy. And like any political system, democracies have pros and cons. And we can look at how other countries around the world with different political systems or democracies that are structured in different ways handle some of these issues. I know that you could say that some, some countries where 
they have less majority governments where their governments are more often coalition or minority based, uh, like many Scandinavian countries. Uh, some of them are taking also really big steps toward climate change. And so maybe that's one way our political systems could also function and address them. You could argue an authoritarian government, if it wanted to, could take some really drastic action on climate change. But would that be, but would that still be taking action on climate change and building what is a good life for everybody? I don't know. I think you really see that highlighted in things like, like, really when you say that what jumps to mind for me just briefly is how the Chinese government, which is not a democratic system, really is so good and effective at long-term infrastructure projects because the planning system is so centralized. Whereas if you live in Toronto, you know that we have been trying to plan better transit for decades. And because of the nature of the democratic political system and because of the way that different even neighborhoods feel about the transit and what it should look like, uh, really the lack of centralized planning has put us in a position where we're like woefully, our transit system is woefully underinvested in. So, I mean, there are many, I just think, you know, there that question isn't only theoretical and I don't say that I don't prefer our system because of course I do, but um, I do think it's not just it's not just a theoretical exercise. Like when it comes to infrastructure, mm-hmm. the the evidence is there. And I think so. If we come down a little bit from the world stage perspective and focus on Canada, and you want to think about how change is generated, we you can think about how things happen in kind of different times. You think about the election season when there's a lot of different ways you can be involved in order to support what you view as the right way to address climate action, whether that be simply by voting or encouraging people to vote or being involved with particular parties. Throughout other times, you can be advocating and supporting different bills that can be going forward. You can be contacting your representatives and pushing them to consider certain private members' bills or drafting one of their own. Absolutely. And it it does work. Like, I know it sounds like emailing into the void. I mean, Scott mentioned it as well, but it does work. And I know, especially when a critical mass of people does it. I mean, it really Mm -hmm. depends on the representative and the circumstance, but it's not just a useless suggestion. And... You can even, if you have experience or expertise in a matter that's relevant to these discussions, which so many people do, whether you be an engineer who wants to talk about renewable energy in your community, whether you be uh, a business person who wants to talk about the benefits of a transition to clean energy, whether you're a nurse who wants to talk to our government about how you see the impacts of climate change in your work in medical settings. These are all perspectives that our government should be hearing. And there's different ways to give those perspectives, whether it be testifying in, at committees for the government or at the city of Toronto, they're called um, deputations. And for some, you have to be invited. Some you can just sign up or some you can request to be someone chosen to give testimony. So there's a lot of different ways to have your voice heard. And it can make a difference. I know here in Kingston, we have a really active group that advocates for turtles. And through their work advocating to our city council, there have been changes to speed limits put in. There have been new turtle fencing put in to help prevent turtles from crossing the roads to nest in places where it's really dangerous and kind of redirecting them. Those are really tangible actions that a community group has pushed for and made those changes happen. And even beyond that, reaching out to, it's important to remember, like, I mean, there is no silver bullet to climate change and that's what makes it so difficult in some level. But it does mean that all areas of society have some role to play. And I think when we talk about broader societal change that can happen if you're a leader in the business community, in the conservation community, like you mentioned, in the political community, 
and in community politics as well. Like I think doing things locally really does add up across the board and does create larger change, whether provincially or federally or internationally. So I, I think it is helpful to be specific about how that change happens. And then also to remember that on some level, like Scott said, you talk about it with people and you talk about it from a position of finding common ground with somebody. And really, I think, I mean, really our podcast is about trying to really embody that solutions-oriented mindset. And I think if that informs your conversations, if someone's hesitant about whether renewables will be, I don't know, as cheap as natural gases, for example, uh, but is maybe persuaded by the health benefits of them, the potential health benefits or something like that. So there really are, I mean, on some level, it does come down to us as individuals, not necessarily our own carbon footprint as we've talked about, but really the actions we choose to take in relation to each other. And I think that's why it's so important we talk about so many different solutions here. And, you know, some solutions, Karen and I may disagree on how big of a role we expect them to play or think they should or the pros and cons of them. But every situation is different. And if we can help share as many solutions as possible, it helps find a solution for every community, every area every individual who wants to be advocating can find a solution that they can advocate for that would work in their context because yeah there is no silver bullet but we have a whole arsenal as well that we can be using yeah we all don't need to do everything and we can't we're only we're each only just one person after all but i think we all can try and do something and that is that is really helpful and thank you for caring about fish as much as I do. <laughs> Thanks, Leslie Ann and Scott, for great conversations. If you need more Rebalancing Act in your life, you can find us at, at Rebalancing Act on Instagram, at Rebalancing Act underscore on Twitter. You can also find us at rebalancingact.ca, so on the World Wide Web. Me and Leslie Ann are going to be taking a little break over the summer. But we will be coming for you with new episodes fall 2021. We'll see you all then.